And that's what life is. They throw you a and you say, what can I do with that? And you can make a and it comes out right. Welcome to Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. I'm Edward Krigsman. Last time, we enjoyed a conversation with local geologist David B. Williams. And David highlighted connections between Pacific Northwest people and the landscape, whether naturally occurring or man-made. The conversation included stories of early Seattle buildings, many of which still form our skyline. And we learned from David that while some of these buildings are not yet 100 years old, some of the stone used to construct them is almost as ancient as our planet. Well, today's guest has roamed these downtown streets and alleys and watched its buildings fall and rise since its childhood in Seattle's central area, where the joys of such exploration and a home filled with music was also softened by pangs of poverty. Later, as pianist and band leader of the Seattle Jazz Ensemble, his performances brought generations of fans to their feet in such storied venues as the Edgewater Hotel, the Four Seasons, the Mini Hotel, and Sorrento's Top of the Town. So today, we'll experience the ups and downs of a hardscrabble Seattle childhood, where everyone, children included, worked to put food on the table, but where music remained an opportunity for joy and connection. And we'll dance our way through some of the region's oldest and most venerated performance venues. Some are still active, and others have been long shuttered. And our guest today will share secrets and decisions that have contributed to a long and fulfilling life. And stick around for today's episode. We've rolled out Jack Straw's grand piano so that the stories you will hear today will be accented through the 88 black and white keys our guest has known and loved through his very long life. Let's drive around. So let's welcome our guest today, Dick Coolen. Hey, Dick. Hi, how are you doing, Edward? It's such a pleasure to have you. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. It's a nice studio here, and I love this piano. It's a Steinway Type B, isn't it? Yeah. I think it is, and it's here just for you today. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So I just wanted to learn a little bit more about the community that you grew up in as a child. What are your early memories of Seattle? Well, I was, uh, uh, our house was on uh, uh, the 20th Avenue, and it was a two-bedroom house, and we had eight kids in the house. Uh, now there's just three of us left. But uh, I used to sleep with my sister because, you know, there's two bedrooms and there's eight kids. <laughs> so Tight quarters. Uh, tight quarters, but, uh, you know, it was fun. It was really delightful. And my dad, we took the, the attic and made it into two more bedrooms up there. So he worked uh, at the transit, but he loved the violin, and we have that with him today. And he was uh, started me on uh, the violin because he thought I was going to be a prodigy. Well, uh, I went to him in immaculate grade school, and he was going to have me taught by the nuns there. But every time they put me in a room with a piano, then the violin went down and I played the piano. Okay. So we started out with things like uh, uh, That's Domino and Rock and roll, let me put it that, because rock and roll was just three chords and you could, you could manage. And what years were this? Probably 1952, 53, somewhere in there. Okay. Yeah. 
Tell us about the jobs that you had as a child. Oh, well, you kind of get the jobs. You go around and stack in coal, stack in wood, molons. A very interesting time. We were, uh, had my little paper out, and it was the shopping news. And, uh, of course, at that time, uh, there was only one television station. That was King 5. It came on at, at 5 o'clock and off at 11, and they played the national anthem at the end. And that was it. But uh, I would go around and do my paper out, and i stop at this young man's house. Uh, he he has, it was a paraplegic, but he had a television, a huge television. I think it was 10 inches. And uh, I used to like to watch, after my paper out, Time for Beanie. And it was kind of a puppet show with uh, uh, Likalina was the boat. That's good name, but it leaked all the time. And Cecil, the sea sick sea serpent. Like that. It's time for Beanie! And then as a child, we used to play outside. And, and uh, uh, my mother had a whistle that uh, sounded like a steamboat. With her, put you, he put her fingers in there, and, and when she called us in at night, when the, the stoplight. But we had uh, there wasn't uh, a big trouble with a lot of people, you know, as we have today, you know. So, Dick, you've had many, many jobs. I think you have, is it like forty-four jobs? Over I counted them one time, yeah. Wow, 44 jobs. Can you sort of rattle off maybe 10 of those? Well, I moved pianos, and then I uh, worked at Lockheed in the shipbuilding. I was a draftsman. And then I worked in the pipe shop as a, a machinist. Uh, let's see, what else? Uh, then I worked for Sears as a salesman. <laughs> uh, oh, I was a fireman at one time at Seattle Fire Department. I lasted about six months, and I... It was pompering off of a tall building, and I came down and I ruined my leg. So that didn't last and so forth. Um, what else? Uh, well, I worked in gas stations. In fact, I, when I was a kid, I, that's what I first started out with. Was about 12 or 13, I worked at the Richfield gas station there at 20th and Union. Your dad was born in Calgary, and then yes. your grandfather was a fisherman? Yes, he was. He out uh, of Nova Scotia, the, lots of the families back there, but he was in Calgary. And of course, uh, my uh, grandmother, his mother, had died at birth. And uh, so he had uh, uh, his aunts or sisters that kind of raised him there, there in, in um, Port Alberni and Nanaimo and, and Vancouver. And eventually, then he came down and remarried here, and he grew up. He was uh, just the only child. But uh, he was his temperament was just a. You know, you couldn't upset him. I don't know why I got that. I would try to emulate him. <laughs> and what brought him to Seattle? His dad. Okay. And they worked on the, at that time they worked on the wars down in Seattle. And uh, uh, he said that uh, they took up smoking and then because the stench was so great. And uh, they were, they'd have to stop and beat off the rats uh, with clubs after a while when that fish came in there. And... Uh, they're pretty big rats. I mean, some of the size of a small cat. And the stench from the fish? Oh, it's, it, you wouldn't imagine what it was. Uh -huh. So he was uh, amazing. We allowed him to eat it. <laughs> so I'm wondering what your life was like in terms of the, the you know, the free range that you were able to have around the city. 
we walked everywhere. In other words, uh, Lake Washington was probably two, three miles, and you go uphill and downhill, up and downhill, and you go swimming. And that's when I first started swimming. And I do swimming today. I love swimming. And at that time, there was no bridges, and you caught a ferry from uh, Madison Park to Kirkland. And we used to dive for dimes. They throw dimes off of the ferry. I know today they probably think that was child child abuse. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> so how did that work? Um, did adults throw dimes to sort of watch children dive in? That's huh? it. They dive down for the dime. Entertainment. That's it. And Cheaper. exercise. Yeah, yeah. Well, you made fifty cents. You could almost buy a you know a whole bunch of things with a dime. Was your childhood realm sort of the central area, or were you allowed to explore the downtown Well, I went to O'Day High School, and, and that's funny you should ask, because that was, again, uphill and downhill both ways. It not make a difference. And during the snow, we had some uh, interesting snow at the time, where the six or seven or eight inches was very normal at the time. Here, it's not so much because of the the atmosphere and all the different buildings they have there now. But uh, no, we used to walk down to the waterfront and uh, get fresh shrimp and i come walk back. And that was about five miles. We didn't think anything to do. Walking was just natural. So it was, uh, we got around different places in Beacon Hill. And then there was places we'd catch a bus and go out and pick, uh, let's see, strawberries or peas out there in, uh, in the Kent area. That was all farming area out there. And uh, another one, I think we had uh, up in uh, Redmond was uh, all blueberries in that area and we'd go over there and apples. Those are all farm areas. Did you pick them to eat or was it work? Oh, it's work. Uh-huh. You know, you get 50 cents or a dollar, whatever it was, which was a lot of money at that time. Sure. So tell us when music um, kind of entered the house, or what are your memories of your musical childhood? We had a piano, Leste, and piano, a little upright. And that's when I would start playing the rock and roll, you know, and uh, had been playing on. And I got so much, and then my mother got uh, so much uh, tired of it that she took two 16-penny uh, nails and nailed down the lid. Oh, no. And uh, my sister has that piano, which she just died recently, mm. but it's down in Olympia. But uh, I, I've always gravitated towards the piano. And are they, is it still screwed shut? Or was she able to get those screws out? I think they did it. I think it was out right now. But uh, that was kind of interesting time. You know, we didn't know we were poor. We, we just had a good time. Uh, where I lived, uh, it was a very international district. Tell me about the different communities that you shared uh, block with? Well, uh, I used to play with a, a band that was all Black Cats, man. And that's where I learned my rhythm. And we played at a place called uh, Birdland. And down there, you know, some people were poor. And there was ladies that of the evening down there. But they really treated me nice. Is and this Jackson Street? I was Madison. Madison. Yeah, I think so. But the fact of it is that I learned to appreciate these because they had no way to make a living but what they did. Mm. And they were very, they always treated me very nice. Mm. And I, I always had an affinity. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, Jesus had an affinity for the, some of those people too. <laughs> and so you got to play music with them? Oh, yes. Yeah, I played it. I was playing the baritone sax at the time. Okay. And uh, we, of course, were playing Don't 
something like that. And I say, I want to take a solo. He says, shut up. <laughs> uh, some from that era, though, is uh, Miles Davis and, of course, Bill Evans. Uh, and I did take it from a guy named Jerry Gray because uh, they were talking about voicing. And basically, I'll show you how the voicing is. If you had a, a that would be the bottom note, which we call the root. And instead of playing the root, you play right in here, you say. See how that sounds? Or a G. But you wouldn't play that. So uh, it's all about the voicing and letting the bass man play what he's gonna play. And that became jazz or bebop or whatever, so. So to what extent was Seattle, you know, is Seattle and was in the 40s and 50s a jazz city, um, or did the influences really come from New York and other places? Well, that's a good question. I don't think it uh, singular, because the jazz is kind of all over the world. Influence came from all over, I mean, from uh, New York, Chicago, naturally, and then L.A. and had all those things as I was down there when we played jazz and so forth. We were talking about Cuba, too. And oh, Cuba. Oh. Yeah, Dizzy was uh, a friend of mine that he, uh, I wrote Tindendio and Tenteca for him, re rewrote it, and uh, he was a neat guy to be around, just very relaxed and so forth. But he uh, got into a lot of the Cuban rhythms and so forth, and uh, I got a kick out of him. And he was, he, that, I said, what, how'd you get that trumpet so bent? And he said, oh, I just liked it that way. Mm. He made it that way. And of course, that was the, the, the epitome of watching him play with his trumpet all bent up, you know. So, Dick, we asked our guests to bring in an object that's important to them, and you shared with me that you're a minimalist. Uh, that was really hard for you. And um, then I said, Dick, if there was a fire in your house and you had to grab one thing and run out the door with it, what would that be? And it, you still paused for two or three minutes, and then you said, what? Well, my dad's violin. <laughs> so you brought your dad's violin. So tell us about the violin. Uh, where did it come from? Well, it was made here in, in Seattle from my orth, and he was very well known at the time. Uh, in fact, uh, there was a picture in the paper one time where a, a bus had ran over a violin and he put it back together again. That's how good of a craftsman he was. Huh. But he was probably one of the best violin makers in Seattle and his violins are hard to, you know, I don't think you can find him anymore, but uh, he was a very excellent craftsman. He, of course, he all patterned that after the Stradivarius. I always say, when they say this is a copy of a Strad, a Strad basically is the one that uh, developed uh, a lot of things that the violin is made up of now and how it's made. So uh, it's a kind of a, a copy of a Strad, but uh, if you don't have the real Strad, then you got money more there. So you mentioned that the violin came from a violin maker at the Fisher Studios building. Right. And that is on 3rd Avenue. And it's a very important building for music and Seattle. So can you share with our listeners who aren't aware of the Fisher Studios building what it was? It was a, almost like, a, as we'd call it, maybe a hippie building. <laughs> 
a lot, a lot of artists that came there. There's singers and dancers and, and of course, violin makers and uh, a lot of different uh, arts that were made in that building. And it was very uh, accessible for the Seattle. And when you th think back at that time, uh, when I came back from the service, I was going to go to University of Washington, which I did. And, of course, the only music they had was classical, and that was it. And then, so the uh, amount of jazz, which they finally figured out, you know, that's part of the music and so forth. And so it was like a culture center, like Chenard's in L.A. It was very uh, arty type of people. Well, let's talk about your life as a musician and the army band. You were stationed in Germany. How did music and the army kind of converge in your life? Well, I played multiple instruments, so I, uh, I went over as a medic, and I was working 17 hours a day and uh, on call 24 hours a day, and I thought, you know, there's got to be a better life than this, and uh, it was a good training, and I learned a lot, but I went down and auditioned for the, it's called a non-TONA, in other words, it's non-technical or not band, and they accepted me right away. And so I uh, started playing, and we toured around and played at all the different places, and depending on what they wanted me to play. And we had a dance band, and then I had a trio, which uh, we sang and did things. And I take it you enjoyed this more than the military service, the initial kind of role that you had? I enjoyed the military service to a certain degree. You know, it was a kind of a learning. I was only 18 when I went in, and uh, I stayed in for three years. We were getting 125 a month, three hots and a cot. So right between the wars, between Vietnam and, and uh, Korea War, I thought, well, that's a good time to go in because there's no bullets thrown. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh -huh. So, but it was a good time and a good training. But uh, we were in the Merrill Barracks, which was the SS concern right in Nuremberg, and uh, where they were still finding 500-pound uh, bombs in there. And uh, when I was in Nuremberg, it was it was flattened at one time because and it's all rebuilt now by now. But every uh, tour that we went around and played, uh, you could see the, the remnants of the war that was there. Huh. And do you remember any particular song from that era that was popular and that you enjoyed? Life is just a bowl of cherries. <laughs> Don't take it serious. Life's too mysterious. You live, you laugh, you live, you so, but you can't take your dough when you go, go, go. So on and so forth. So that, I remember that one. Too. So. And the best things in life are free and stuff like that. But, but I mean, they did the, the uh, In the Mood and, uh, of course, uh, a lot of the big band covers. So let's talk about your musical career then after the service. And who were you on the road with? It's hard to say because... They weren't big artists and so forth, but I was on the road for about three years, and I decided that was not a place for a family man and so forth. So I made uh, a, formed a band called Sentimental Journey, and that was a big band. We played for a while, and I played at small venues, big venues, and anywhere you could make a buck. <laughs> but I played with more like Dizzy, and then Ike Cole, I went up with him. That was... Uh, Nat's brother, and he sang all the Nat King souls, and he was in Vancouver. He didn't go over too well because, you know, the people up there were more country western. So you, did you help him with arrangements? 
No, I didn't. No, had, okay. In fact, I learned more from him as, as we, because uh, I learned about uh, alternate chords. Yeah, what did you learn from Ike? Well, alternate chord would be... But then you can do this one. See how the, the, the it's bright and so it, it alternate chords are like um, uh, instead of doing the normal way of doing it, you have some other ways to go into it. So I learned a lot from Ike in that particular place. Yeah. So, but he was he was uh, he had a microphone with a straight stand. No boom stand. I said, why not? He says, that keeps me facing forward. Well, he would play the piano, and say, then when he'd get up and sing, I would play the piano behind him. Uh-huh. But uh, there was Ike, of course, Nat, and Eddie, and uh, Marilyn, as far as I remember, and they all played piano and sang. They're all siblings. Yeah. 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 Oh, very so, musical family. Yeah. So uh, very nice people. So let's talk about more as you sort of evolved as a band leader, musician in Seattle. And where did you play? Oh, pretty all over the places you played. Uh, in Tacoma, we went out to the coast and played the coast. and Wherever we could make a buck, basically that's it. And it belonged to the Musicians Union at the time, which had a big building. Now it's in this little office downtown here. So, um, What was fact, the Musicians? What was being a part of that like and how did that help you? Well, they used to get referrals, and you could go down there and get it. I mean, even in Vegas, when we played down there, uh, that was a big uh, union building, and it had showers and all that. And now, if you look at it, what happened down there is that uh, they had the bands on the stage, and they said, well, we're going to put you in the basement, and you can wear anything you want. And so that developed the back music that you couldn't see any musicians, and so that evolved into a record the music and so forth, and they all do that. And I was down there about seven or eight years ago. Now the Musicians Union is in a cramped little house, and that's mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. So okay. that's what happened to that. It sneaks up on you. So the Sorrento Hotel, uh, you performed there. It's one of the most historic and beautiful. The building was designed by the same architect that designed the uh, corner market building at Pike Place Market, right. Thomas Harlan. But it had a ballroom at the very top? Yes, okay. what they call the top of the town. And what was that like, and what was like to perform there? Well, they had uh, several performers. I would do that too, but uh, the one that was um, uh, most prevalent was a lady played up there, and she had all these different kind of hats and so forth that she would play all this mostly boogie-woogie and um, blues and so forth. I don't remember her name because it's been you know, 70 years ago, I don't sure. remember, quite a while ago, but it was a good venue. And I, uh, You mentioned also that when we spoke earlier that you learned a little Tagalog up there. Oh, yes. yes. So tell us about the people that well, they, taught you Tagalog. The uh, people that owned it were the Delfieros who were with Filipinos. So they taught me a song like this. Dahil um, Sayo Ang ekulumigaya, dahil sa yon ang amawatay, dahil plat nun tatuin walilwali bangili puso ko ay tatuin 
伊卡埃里格人，拉后沙哟，阿康鲁梅加呀，帕巴马汉，哎呀安康，普苏科尔哟，哎呀伊皮尼莫，阿兰哈朗伊吹，拉后沙哟。Thank you. Yes, it's great. One of the things you grew up in the central district, and there's all yeah. these different languages. Yeah, that's, and I'm still learning the languages. I think that's important. It you is. Know? It is. So, so what was the fanciest venue that you played? Sort of the most upscale,、um, formal. Well, the, the Olympic Hotel. Naturally, we did a lot、uh-huh, of things sure, there, sure. and that was big ballrooms and so、oh, forth.、Yeah. Another venue I think that was、uh, kind of interesting is.、Uh, We played at the、um, Jacobi's, and that was on Baybridge Island. Now Jacobi owns Windermere,、mm-hmm. and、uh, that's another fancy. You know, some of these places you play at are so fancy and so forth. And is Jacobi's a, a bar? Of, that's the is, name of the people. Okay, yeah, sure, the Jacobi family. Jacobi,、okay. yeah, oh, you played at their home. Yes. Okay. And we played at、uh, Burt Lancaster's house and some of these other places. And then you also you mentioned there was kind of a period where you played at a lot of gay bars. Absolutely, yeah. So tell us about that experience. Well, and that was like a whole kind of era for Seattle. And for well, the, there was actually at that time the first gay bar was at、uh, in the Musicians Union, and they treated me very well and paid me very well and、uh, just very polite. I, I've had more experiences like in some of the bars that the, if a lady buys you a drink,、uh, you're expected to perform or so forth. And I didn't particularly like that, but、uh, then we do a lot of the Judy Garland, and well, that was big time, you know, clang, clang, clang with the Charlie and so、uh-huh. forth, and of course Barbara Streisand, and these guys were very good at what they did. I mean, I they were gorgeous gals. Like dra- drag shows. <laughs> oh yeah.、So、anything But, anything you'd <clears throat> like to share in terms of a great song that was used for accompaniment at a drag show? Well,、uh, of course, the Judy Garland, you know, the, over the rainbow and clang, 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 and things from the、um, the movie、uh, Meet Me in St. Louis was those are kind of big.、Uh-huh. Of course, the Streisand was, you know, people and so forth, and you know, all the big songs she would do.、Um, I remember those were the particularly two because I had the background in playing all these shows.、Uh-huh. In fact, we played the, a lot of the、uh, Guys and Dolls and stuff like that in the service. But、uh, I met a couple of gals that had a bookstore, and that's where they got me into playing for them down there because they said, "Oh, okay." So you learn to let people, you know, be people, and don't be judging people just because they don't look like you. Any other stories that you recall during the years that you were performing? For live audiences、uh, in the Northwest, that are fun stories or memorable. Here's a good one for you. <laughs> <laughs> We、uh, took the whole big eighteen-piece band, took it down to Faircrest, and we played for the dump <laughs> <laughs> in Faircrest, Washington. Faircrest, Washington,、okay. and their dump out there, and they had the big band for the dump. Who was listen? Who were the listeners? I do not know <laughs> the time. There's a whole bunch of people down there, but they're opening the dump,、uh, you know, the garbage disposal, whatever it is. I think that was the funniest one、huh. I've ever been.、Oh. And you brought all your instruments and you were performing. Oh yes,、oh, yes,、okay. just it was kind of interesting.、Huh. So wow, that's、uh, <laughs> that's one of the things. <laughs> Didn't play any restrooms, but I played the dump. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, 
but uh, the first kind of little band I had when I came here was the Tijuana Brass, and that's when I played the marimba. And uh, we played all the Herbie Alpert tunes and so forth, and we used to go to the naval base up in Whidbey Island and Officers Club, and they put us up there, and we play all this Tijuana Brass stuff, and there was about eight musicians there. Mm. So... Uh, I think some are past, some are still around. Uh-huh. In fact, uh, some of the see, John Mowad was one of my drummers. Now, he was started the Roseville Jazz Band, and then he went to teach at uh, Central and eventually passed from cancer. Mm. But uh, there's a lot of musicians I've uh, played with or had played with. Brian Kirk is probably one of the best drummers in, in the Seattle and they, he's we had to play. That was an uncomfortable place. We were playing down in... Uh, uh, Longview, Washington, and uh, there was some little racial tension there. So, what, what exactly happened? Well, I mean, some of the, I mean, some of those people, or some of the, some of these men were very prejudiced. Let me put it that way. And, and of course, we, they, they, we, we had a separate room. We had three of us in one room there. That's another thing. When I was down in in uh, Texas at the time, going to medical school down, and one of my buddies, uh, they wouldn't let us eat in the restaurants down there. But there was still a lot of prejudice, in the, and I was in the 58s and mm-hmm. so forth. Mm-hmm. And I was never raised that way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and raised that way in terms of the values of your family? Oh, values of people. Yeah, you know. your, your community oh, in yeah. the central area. Yeah, because I yeah. mean, I had to, that was important to me because I, I learned a lot of my jazz and, and especially beats and so forth. And, and I, that was a great experience, and that never left me. Treat everyone equally and look for their soul. So what other values did you come away with in your upbringing, your community? My, that my you mother were and father were that way. They very, uh, of course, we had to, we were raised Catholics and uh, that's kind of stayed with me a bit. Mm-hmm. But uh, my dad was a very fair person, a very, had, I think that's the raising of the people there because we lived right in that central district. Mm-hmm. And at that time, that was a beautiful place to live. What a gift to be able to Oh, absolutely. Community. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I wouldn't have traded for a gazillion dollars. could talk a little bit about Dizzy Gillespie. It's such a luminary figure in American music. And, oh, absolutely. And, and you had the opportunity to perform with him. And it was just anything you could share about your memories well, of I Dizzy. Well, I had a, uh, uh, he was out the house and I had a, on my house, I had a book called Bird Lives. And he laughed at that book and he said, well, that's not quite what it was. How did you meet him? I was working at the Black Academy of Music. And uh, I met a lot of good performers and so forth. And then what was the Black Academy of Music? That was a little place up there near uh, Immaculate Conception had a room and they had uh, Joe uh, Brazil. He was the head of that time. And uh, we had a lot of good performers coming through there and so forth. And he had, uh, I think Joe had a lot of, knew a lot of people at that time. So eventually he had a little... Uh, quartet and so forth and the singer and we put us on the road and we went down and played in uh, Sacramento. Okay. So. Uh, when was that roughly? In the 70s maybe. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so. okay. Then uh, we had lunch and uh, and he gave me a couple scores. He said, can you rewrite these? And I said, Tintindio and Manteca. And that was kind of more of the Cuban uh, intro. And uh, then we went down to lunch there at the at, uh, 
Edgewater where we stay and we played a little bit. And, and, uh, but uh, it was always fond memories. He very just normal kind of cat. Yeah. He uh-huh. Real good. Good. And Ella, you mentioned Ella uh, earlier before we had the mics running. And I just wanted to ask you, what is your estimation of Ella Fitzgerald in terms of the American pantheon of oh, jazz? She's, uh, she started with Chick Webb and singing. Then she, she took that band over. But uh, she had such a big vocal and she understood. Uh, I mean, she. I mean, she didn't start being. I mean, when she started, she was a scared little gal. You know, she didn't have all the chops she had when she, later on. She learned those chops on the way. On the road. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, but uh, she had a, a big vocal range, and uh, I, one night she was singing for three hours straight, and that's unusual. She had some chops. And, and uh, be able to carry that too. And then she, of course, she was scat, and everybody tried to copy her, mm-hmm. but they didn't understand what scat was all about. Mm. What is it? It's about uh, being a musical instrument. It's not the word so much, it's the instrument. She had her own style, let me put it that way. Uh, I've seen people try to copy her style, and uh, she had a good range of different instruments that she could do. And uh, she'd be, and most important thing, she's always on tune. <laughs> Some of these singers are going. <laughs> so there was a time when you left Seattle and you moved to Port Orchard. Yes. Um, so can you just tell us about that journey? I mean, that's a big change, right? From a urban, a very, very kind of a citified life from, of your childhood, and then you just laugh. So what happened? And Well, I used to grab this? a little garden in the back, and I you know, thought, man, if I had a bigger place, I could grow more. <laughs> so I, I, I got 10 acres over in near Port Orchard, and I have my own well and so forth, and it's very comfortable, and nobody bothers me. <laughs> and what's the water like from the well compared to the water in Seattle? It's very good. Yeah, you, it tastes like water. <laughs> <laughs> So and uh, it's it's better for you to drink. That's the main reason I moved over there. I looked over there. We looked all around the sound, and I found out we could get we bought ten acres for ten thousand sixty dollars a month at six percent interest, and I got that paid off. And then of course I built the house, and then I bricked it because I didn't like to paint. Uh-huh. So and you were you were a bricklayer, right? Is that right for a right. while? Yeah, I, I go where I can make a living, you have, support my family. Yeah, but yeah. I continued to play, but because yeah, you know, if you're not uh, uh, musicians, don't get paid that much usually, and the, the stars are about one percent, and that's not a good life either because they don't last long, so to speak. Why so, is that? I think it's a poor lifestyle. Personally, I mean, you're you're going from one place to another. Uh, like Janis Joplin and so forth, and and uh, uh, you're not having a regular type of meal and so forth, and and having a steady diet is something that's you know. It's such a shame. Yeah, it right? is. But a lot of these j- just brilliant people that have given so much. Jimi Hendrix obviously comes to mind. Oh, uh, Jimi! <laughs> he lived down the street from me in a red house. Oh. <laughs> Tell us about Jimi Hendrix. Uh, he was a young whippersnapper. snapper. <laughs> he, he liked rock and roll and guitar and so forth, but he made it big for himself. But uh, Did you guys play together? Or were you no, I older? never did. No, yeah. no. I just knew him down there. He was about three or four blocks down from where I was. Yeah. I've read his, there was a kind of a biography written based on his letters to his parents, and he went in the army, of course, too. And I was just very moved by his tenacity as a musician 
he really hated being in the military and yeah. kind of found a way to get out. Yeah. But was just just obsessed with um, music and yep. wanting to be better. You know, at 17 and 18 years old. Yep, so, that's right. Yeah. yeah see, so you can't put any people down like that. No. You know, Seattle is a music city, right? Across multiple genres, across all multiple cultures here. But it's not always an easy life, and you've sort of suffered some of the consequences, but also made other decisions. Well, I made a decision that I would not go on the road anymore because it's not, you can't grow musically in that way. You're playing the same thing over, and it gets to be uh, a torture, and you're playing, the, you know, the same songs that they made popular, and they're dancing, you're playing to feet. So I made a decision to, to take my lumps here and come back here and support my family and then uh, develop my own music, and that's what I did. Yeah. So, and I yeah. contend, we played uh, all the time, but I also had a steady income as in my, I was a bricklayer, so yeah. uh, that that kept the family together. And now my daughters are, one one's in uh, real estate and the other's in insurance, and they take care of me. <laughs> wonderful. Yeah. Well, congratulations on that. A long, long marriage and yeah. two wonderful children. Yeah. Um, is there anything that you would kind of have done differently just based on the experience of having lived your life? I don't think you can. Yeah. I think each step is, is, a, is a learning. Good and bad, whatever it is, it's, you know, sometimes you learn to eat peanut butter with jam and then sometimes you eat peanut butter with pickles. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's that kind of a journey. And, and how has music sort of figured along and helped you along over the years? Well, as I'm grown into it, I, I don't, I'm looking for like the, the wrong notes, we used to say, because instead of playing a, a song like a, what can you do with that? And that's what life is. They throw you a, and you say, what can I do with that? And you can make a, And it comes out right. I gotcha. See, that's what music has taught me how to live life, to take lemon and make lemonades, I guess, and so forth. Make think that, uh, keep that positive thing. I always like that song, you got to accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, latch on to the affirmative, and don't mess with Mr. In-Between. What does it mean to hear a song in your heart and in your soul for you? It's uh, a life-giving. That's all I can say. It, it feeds your soul of that special sound. I want to acknowledge that your your parents, you describe them as very gentle souls, your father and so forth, and I think that really translates. They did a phenomenal job raising their children and you, oh, and it you. really comes out yeah. in your demeanor as well, yeah, thank you. in your attitude toward life. So yeah, thank you for being our guest and sharing so much. Things can change as quick as a blink of an eye. 
lifetime can bring a moment that never comes twice. Join us next time when our guest will be Earl Bogert, president of the Ivan Foundation and grandson of Earl Irwin, founder of the B&I Circus Store in Lakewood, Washington. You may have learned about this place from the Newbery Award-winning book, The One and Only Ivan, which was later turned into a movie by Disney. But for those of us who grew up in the Pacific Northwest in the 50s to the 70s, the B&I was a regional landmark and the only store we loved to visit as children. Founded in 1945 by two wounded World War II vets, including Irwin, as the B&I sales company, it peddled military surplus out of a Quonset hut. But the post-war era brought prosperity to the B&I. So in our next episode, we'll learn what contributed to this early shopping mall success. It's mainly thanks to Irwin's ingenious and unrelenting marketing skills, which attracted children and their families into the store through newspaper, radio, and TV ads that showcased celebrity appearances in contests involving such crazy things as mountains of melting ice. And in 1967, Ivan the Gorilla joined this mangerie. To hear his true story, you'll need to join us for the next episode of Power of Place as we stroll through the biggest little store in the world, the BNI Circus Store. Thank you for joining us today. Audio engineering and sound design by Daniel Gunther. Photography by Brandon Williams. Administrative support from Mary Barbour. Theme music written by Toma Nakayama and performed by Grand Hallway with additional music written by Andrew Weathers as well as by Ryan Love and performed by Fox Hunt. And for this episode, we've enjoyed live music performed by Dick Coolin in our studio. We record on Coast Salish land at the Jack Straw Cultural Center in Seattle's University District. I'm Edward Krigsman, and you've been listening to Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review or subscribe to our podcast series. And if you know of a place in the Pacific Northwest that matters to you, please tell us about it. We'd love to hear your stories.